0: are listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening our sermon comes from Leviticus chapter 26, so I invite you to turn with me there to Leviticus chapter 26. In the Pew Bible, it is on page 104, if you'd like to turn there, 104 and 105. This great book we've been working through, we're coming towards the end, these final two chapters, this great book showing us how to approach a holy God and how to commune with a holy God. And even though we don't continue the ceremonial laws that are, that are taught here in this book, we are taught much about Christ and much about what it means to be his people. And tonight is no exception. We'll see tonight we're su- kind of summing up the book, beginning to put the loose ends together and conclude, come to a conclusion next time in chapter 27. But we see the summary of the law, what is commanded of God's people, and the blessings and punishments for obedience and disobedience. So hear now God's word this evening from Leviticus chapter 26, and we will read verses 1 through 26. So hear now the word of the Lord from Leviticus 26. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence, my sanctuary. I am the Lord if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the great harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove, harm, remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. And I will not walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant. Then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate hate you, shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me, and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which, have, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be des- deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As we come to the end of the book of Leviticus, we have a rather frightening and confusing passage. We've been talking about God's gracious provision of salvation for Israel. And so what now about blessings for obedience and punishments for disobedience? Why is this here after we've been talking about a gracious God who provides salvation for his people? What we have here in this chapter is an unpacking of the principle stated in Leviticus 18, which we had addressed previously. Verses 4 and 5 say this You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That principle laid out in Leviticus 18, that if you abide by God's word, you will live by them. And so we'll see again what that that means in this fleshed out context here in Leviticus 26. We'll see that in Christ, every blessing is ours and every punishment is his. So we are implored to turn to him. In Christ, every blessing is ours and every punishment is his. So turn to him. To him. To get to this conclusion, there's three concepts we need to grasp to get there. So let, we're going to look at these three different concepts this evening. First is blessings and punishments. Second, Israel's life in the land. And then third, our life in heaven. Blessings and punishment, Israel's life in the land, and then our life in heaven. So let's consider the blessings and the punishments of our passage. Our passage began with verse 1 and 2, calling Israel to obey God, all of his statutes, all of his commandments, as verse 3 says. And then we have in verse 1 and 2, elements of worship are specifically mentioned here. They're called to not make images of God. Do not make any images and bow down to God. we are called to keep the Sabbaths, this command we've seen over and over throughout the book. So Israel is called completely to obey all of God's statutes. First of all, everything in this book, as it comes at the end of the book, it's recapping. Everything said here is important. And Israel is called to obey but also all of the law of God. As Israel was receiving this at the foot of Mount Sinai, along with the 10 commandments, along with the rest of the law, Israel was called to heed and obey all of God's law. And in relation to God's law, there were two outcomes for Israel. First, if they obeyed, it led to blessings. And if they disobeyed, it led to punishments. These are, as the text mentioned several times throughout, these are covenant blessings and covenant curses, covenant judgments for God's people. Are they faithful to the Mosaic covenant or are they not? And God will render a judgment and exercise justice accordingly. Will they receive the blessings that are due to them for faithfulness or will they receive curses for their unfaithfulness? Let's look at these blessings that, that God brings to the fore for Israel. In verses 3 through 13, he lists a number of blessings. You see, he, he lists in verse 4 and 5, rain and fruitful land. So they'll be blessed physically in the land. Even more than that, verses 6 through 8, peace in the land. These harmful and wild animals will be removed. They will be able to defeat their enemies. They'll have peace, that word shalom. In the land, rest in the land. Verses 9 and 10, they'll have growth and prosperity. God will give them growth. He'll give them fruitfulness. They'll be able to multiply, echoing language from Genesis. God will give them growth in the land. And then there's this ratification of the core covenant promises in verses 11 and 12. I will make my dwelling among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. These are the blessings God promises to Israel. But then the tables turn in verse 14 through the end of the chapter, really. We only read through verse 26. And there's a progression here of greater punishment for greater disobedience. As we see this progression throughout the rest of the chapter, we begin in verse 16 where God says he will destroy through disease. Enemies will plunder their crops. Verse 17, enemies will defeat them, will rule over them. People who hate Israel will be the ones ruling them. There will be punishment and futility, verses 18 through 20 lay out. Verses 21 and 22, wild beasts that God promised otherwise to keep at bay if they obeyed, God will set them loose on Israel if they disobeyed. They will consume their children and livestock. Verses 23 through 26 chronicles pestilence, defeat by enemies, even starvation. And we stopped here, but 27 continues. Verses 27 through 33 there's devastating suffering that will come upon the people death, including resorting to cannibalism and expulsion from the land. And it's only at that point God says he will provide rest for the land in verse 34 through 39. He will provide the Sabbath rest that the land is yearning for, that the people will refuse to give it. And if any remain in the land after the rest have been carted off into exile, they will be filled with fear, confusion, and no hope. There's a lot on the line for Israel as they stand, the foot of Mount Sinai, receiving God's law. Will they obey or will they not? Will they receive the blessing of the land or will they be exiled from it. There's every reason in the world for Israel to obey God's law, to worship him alone, to not bow down to other gods, to not create false idols, to love their neighbors, to observe the Sabbath. Why would they not do this? The blessings and the punishment of the covenant were on the line. So blessings and punishments. First, let's look second now to Israel's life in the land. And I use the word Israel here to speak of those ethnically who have descended from Jacob, regardless of their faith and their spiritual condition. The people of Israel standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, Israel's life in the land. Israel in the land lived under either covenant blessings or curses. God promised to give them a land and give them a land he did. But their maintenance in the land was conditioned upon Israel's obedience or disobedience. And ultimately, disobedience would lead to curses and lead to exile. And of course, we know in history, that's what happened. God gave them the promised land. And 11 Joshua says, not a single word of God failed as he gave them the blessing of the promised land, the land that flowed with milk and honey. He gave them, as it were, heaven on earth. But Israel was unfaithful. Israel could not keep the covenant. And so ultimately, God, gave, God was so patient with them, but ultimately, their disobedience led to exile. What we have here, as we mentioned last week, is an intrusion of heavenly realities here on earth, an intrusion of what is true about heaven, the place where righteousness dwells, the place where God is. We see God sets up the land as an intrusion of that picture of heaven. This land, now in the Middle East that we know as Israel, that land was where God would dwell with his people. And God's people were called to be righteous in the land. This heavenly ethic. And if they disobeyed, they would be purged from the land. Because in God's land, sin cannot dwell. And so we have this heavenly intrusion Perfection is in the land. Imperfection is punished and banished. Now, what is important for us as we consider Israel's life in this land, this promised land, this picture of heaven, and the punishments that they received, we must understand that this is not speaking of the Christian life today. We're not speaking of blessings and curses for the Christian here and now based upon our obedience and disobedience to God. That's where this intrusion in the land is so important to understand. It was a unique place in all of human history. God set this apart to be a microcosm of heaven. Only perfection can dwell there. These laws that we've read through the book of Leviticus are part of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant God makes with Israel, with Moses as the mediator on Mount Sinai. And these laws do not apply to us directly as they did for Israel. And we've talked about this as we went out went throughout. We don't sacrifice the way they did. We don't observe the feast the way Israel did. And that's all because all of these laws, all of these ceremonies, this whole Mosaic covenant itself pointed them to the one who would fulfill it. It pointed Israel to the coming Messiah. All of the sacrifices daily made Israel yearn for the one who would provide the final sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice. And so we see Christ coming to fulfill the law, to do everything that the law pointed to. And as we read earlier from Ephesians 2, Jesus, as Paul writes, abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. These ceremonial laws of Leviticus are abolished by Christ. Not abolished because they're just written off, but they're abolished because they're fulfilled. They're abolished because all of their meaning came to a head in Jesus Christ. And so we're no longer required to observe them. Christ fulfilled them. The purpose of the law is now gone. They were signposts to the coming Savior. And now the Savior is here and he has fulfilled them. He has indeed abolished them for us. There's an important distinction that comes up in a passage such as this, and that's the distinction between God's judgment and God's discipline. God's judgment and God's discipline. And what we must say is that God does not judge his people today. God does not execute covenant curses upon his people today. We can say, In Leviticus 26, these punishments were judgments, were covenant curses coming upon Israel for them breaking the Mosaic covenant by their disobedience. Now, it's important to note, these are not eternal judgments that they're receiving. They're temporal judgments with relation to the land and the promises of their well-being in it. But God judged Israel according to the Mosaic covenant. But undergirding the Mosaic covenant was that covenant God made through Abraham to Abraham and through him to all of his people. That covenant that promised everlasting life to those who believe in God's promise. That covenant was not abrogated. That covenant was not concluded. All of Israel who looked to God's promises of the coming Messiah were saved. So there were Israelites in Egypt in Israel who trusted in God for salvation, and yet were a part of a faithless people and they suffered covenant curses, even though they themselves trusted in God and they have the blessings of eternal life. So we must distinguish between the spiritual and heavenly realities and these external realities of the Mosaic Covenant. And so God does not judge us even in the external sense in the way he judged Israel according to the Mosaic covenant. But what we can say, though God does not execute covenant judgment upon us, covenant curses and punishment upon God's people today, God does discipline us today. Now, for Israel, this covenant judgment did function as a sort of discipline to remind them of their sin and to to bring them back to himself. So it did function in a disciplinary way. But we see for us in, in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of the book of Hebrews is citing Proverbs and he says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the Lord is at work disciplining us. Now, it's not according to covenant curses, but he's disciplining us when we sin, when we refuse to seek after him. The Lord will discipline us. Oftentimes, it takes the form of natural consequences. We're feeling the weight of our sin. The Lord is disciplining us and calling us back to him to remind us that this is not the path for God's people. This is the way of misery, the way of toil, the way of difficulty in this life. We're called instead to obey. We're called back to repentance and trusting in the Lord. So God does discipline us today. Again, not in the form of covenant curses, even in an external way, but God will discipline us. God shows us the heinousness of our sin. God in his promises does bring difficulty into our lives, sometimes uh, totally apart from anything we do, but God does not bring difficulty in our lives as punishment to make us do penance for our sin, but sometimes the difficulty brought into our lives is to open our eyes to our sin to see what separates us from God, what harms others around us. And indeed, God's God's discipline is his kindness to us. He only disciplines those he loves. He doesn't discipline the world. He only disciplines his children. And the goal of God's discipline is always to lead us to greater dependence upon God. It's not to make us feel unworthy. It's not to, to, to stomp us underfoot it's not a punishment, it's God's kindness to us. God's discipline of us now is not punishment. It's not like Israel being exiled from the land. We're not atoning for our sins by bearing God's punishment. He's a good father, loving and teaching us. So Israel's life in the land, there was Covenant curses and blessings promised to them. And their life in the land was contingent upon whether they would be faithful to God or not. And so let's look thirdly to our life in heaven. Our life in heaven. When I use the word our, I'm referring to all who trust in God's Messiah for salvation. Whether it's those of old in Israel who looked for the coming Messiah, or us today who look back upon him and his finished work. Our life in heaven, all of those who look upon the Savior. And for us, considering our life in heaven, this passage reveals a deeper principle that's at work. That was in the Garden of Eden. You remember God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you disobey me, he says, you shall surely die. The corollary of that was, if you obey me, you shall live. There was in the garden held out to Adam, if you obey me, I will give you the eat of the tree of of life. And you can enjoy life with me in perfect blessedness forever. If you obey But if you disobey, you are cut off. You will surely die. Israel's position was an outward circumstance. Israel's covenant blessings or curses externally with regard to the land was meant to teach us about this spiritual reality, this fundamental reality that we must perfectly obey God to enter into his heavenly rest. Any disobedience cuts us off from him. We've said, and, we've, as if, as, and as we've seen week by week, the land demonstrates what heaven will be like. The year of Jubilee was a great celebration, what heaven will be like, but it wasn't yet heaven. It pointed them to heaven the need of perfection to enter heaven. What does this eternal life in heaven with God require? for us to enter into it, for us to maintain life with God in eternal blessedness. It requires the perfection that Leviticus 26 described, a general keeping of all of the law of God's commandments. Actually, no, that's not exactly correct. It doesn't require general keeping of all God's commandments. It goes further. It requires perfectly keeping every commandment of God. God was incredibly patient with Israel. They failed over and over and over before he exiled them from the land. They weren't held in this external covenant with regard to the land. They weren't held to a standard of perfection, but it pointed them to the reality of God's standard for perfection to enter heaven. God's dwelling place cannot be defiled with anything unholy. One single sin is enough to separate us from God forever. And by the sin of our father, Adam, all of us are rendered guilty at birth. And we are rendered unable to even enter the eternal promised land, the land that the promised land pointed to, that Abraham knew this this place that he was going, the land that his family was gonna be given. Abraham knew that wasn't the end all be all. He knew it pointed to the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. So how can we enter that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God? How do we enter there? It's the way that Leviticus has been telling us over and over and over. It's through the appointed substitute who purifies us and dies in our place. It was that lamb who was sacrificed on the altar. And that pointed to the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is the man, Jesus Christ. It is the one, the eternal son of God who took upon himself our nature, uniting himself to our nature for eternity, who died in our stead that opens the gates of heaven for his people. Otherwise, we are no better than Israel who will be exiled for eternity from God's presence. We are full of sin. And so all of these judgments of which we read, we deserve them to the nth degree in the pit of hell forever. All of these punishments should be ours, not just physically, but spiritually, outside of the presence of God because of our sin. But where does this judgment actually fall for those who are in Christ Jesus? It falls upon Christ himself. Christ took this punishment upon himself so that we do not have to bear any longer our sin because our sin was placed upon his shoulders. And Although we are full of sin, deserving the punishment, Christ takes the punishment for us. Christ is the perfect one who receives all of the blessings that Leviticus 26 speaks of and all the greater spiritual blessings that it points to. Christ is the one who receives the blessings, and Christ is the one who then doles out all of these blessings again to his people. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places are ours in Christ. Not just these blessings about a land and a place and peace and security. No, eternal rest an eternal land, eternal peace, eternal security where no enemy can ever touch you. Again, where no wild animals will ever threaten you or your family again, where sin will never penetrate, will never come after you again. Satan will be vanquished to hell forever. This is the great exchange, and all of the perfections of Leviticus 26 that Christ achieved are yours, and all of the punishments of Leviticus 26 that you deserve are now his, a great exchange. Our sin is placed upon him. His righteousness is given to us and all of the covenant blessings are ours. And the best of days for Israel and the land in the best of their obedience, which at best lasted a very short time as they understood God's blessing upon them, as they enjoyed peace in the land, as they could, could, could run all of their enemies out of the promised land they were only experienced but a small fraction of that which the land pointed to. A small fraction of what heavenly bliss will look like as they, if they did celebrate the year of Jubilee, they were experiencing only a tiny portion of that eternal rest that they will have in the arms of their savior. This land is a beautiful picture for Israel and for us. And all the blessings are a beautiful picture for Israel and for us of what it will be like to be with God forever. Look at the greatness of Christ, what he has done. We cannot read these blessings and curses and think, if I'm good enough, I can achieve these blessings. It is a fool's errand to read this and to say, I can do it. I know I can. I am good enough. And I can do what Israel was called to do. This is what Israel's purpose was, to obey. But they demonstrated for us that it is impossible. They couldn't attain it. They failed. And so we saw in history all of these curses coming upon them because of their disobedience. So the law taught Israel, as it continues to teach us today, but it taught them very acutely their need of a savior. They could not even keep their own livelihoods in the land by obedience. They needed one to do it for him. And brothers and sisters, we still need him today. We need him every day. So look to him. Look to that great shepherd of the sheep, the one who laid his life down for his people and receive every spiritual blessing, not just these external blessings as great as they are, but every spiritual blessing. And then one day we will experience physical blessing far greater than we can imagine, far greater than Leviticus 26 paints for us. He pours out his blessing upon us with plenty through the entirety of our lives and especially in heaven, that place where righteousness dwells. let us grow in thanksgiving for this God. Let us look to our savior, Jesus Christ, now and every day for all we need because indeed he has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Let us look to him in prayer. Gracious God, we are thankful that although Israel was under this covenant and that their obedience would be the condition of covenant blessings or covenant curses. We're thankful that every covenant curse came down upon Jesus Christ who stood in our place, who perfectly fulfilled all righteousness for us that we might have every blessing forever and ever. We rejoice, Father. We rejoice that this salvation was earned at such a cost that it was given so freely. And so we pray that you would make us more and more faithful servants. Not faithful servants who are fearful of our our heavenly Father, but we pray that you would make us servants who love our heavenly Father. And now as sons and daughters, desire to keep your law, desire to obey you because of the great mercy and grace you have shown us. Make us a more thankful people. Make us a faithful people that we would bring you honor and praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.